Hey kid, welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball. We's a podcasting over here. This is Talon Lee, he, him. And this is Fox Lee, she, her. And we are watching all of the Disney Animated Canon one at a time and then talking about it for roughly an hour in the hopes that someone out there is listening. This time, and in this season finale, we are watching Movie 27 in the Disney Animated Canon. Yes, I, I think the official line to refer to them is Disney's 26th full-length animated feature. Which is to say, we don't want to mention that one. It's, listen, when we started out on this journey, I did not promise that it made sense which ones they decided they wanted to canonize. <laughs> which ones they decided they should forget about. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1988's Oliver and Company. Oh, boy, are we at peak 80s. I- incredibly so. Hey, this is not 80s enough for me. Do you think we could somehow put in Billy Joel, who's also a cool dog? <laughs> hey, uh, Fox. Yeah? Plot in 60 seconds. Oh, your it's turn. my turn. I got this. Your time starts now. A box of feral cats are abandoned on the streets of New York City. It's New York. Did we mention that? It's New York. New York, New York, New York, New York, New York. Right, uh, they get adopted one by one except one who cannot find a home and accidentally falls in with a gang of street dogs who work for a thief who's trying to pay back a gangster. The cat accidentally gets adopted by a little rich girl and the desperate thief decides that he can ransom the kitty back to get the money that he owes. He caves in at the last minute because he's just a big sweetheart in the end, and the gangster instead kidnaps the little girl. So now we have to do a big dog rescue. Uh, and that's gonna go great, except for several dogs and at least one guy dying horribly on a subway. Uh, but everyone's happy in the end. Let's do a birthday. New York, kid! I, yeah, that's it. You've got it all, and with five (laughs) seconds to spare. What truly stuns me about this is, one how accurate what you just said is to the movie. (laughs) And two, how much better your description makes the movie sound. I left out some salient details. I completely skipped over our uh, anti-villain, I guess, who's probably the best thing about this movie, realistically speaking. Yeah, probably the most fun thing. Yeah. Probably the least cringy thing. (laughs) But now we have the plot. Fox, what's your pre-existing relationship to this work? This is another one where I was familiar with the basic story and whatnot from storybooks and trading cards, but I hadn't seen this until about, I want to say 2006, 2007, when I actively tracked it down. It was, I feel like it was not big here, like I never saw this for sale uh, uh, or or anything. It must have hit theaters at some point, but I think that was before my parents were willing to pay for me to go to a cinema. Mm. What about you? Well, I've read all of a twist. Well, yeah, that's a thing. Sure, sure. Beyond that, no. Uh, This movie has a reputation that I was aware of, which is, this is a colossally bad idea. (laughs) I mean, it's not a great idea. Like, the overall tone of the conversation around Oliver and Company, in my experience, is one of disdain. Where it's like, oh yeah, do you remember that time they did a movie with Billy Joel as a singing (laughs) dog? And, like, that's the general kind of negative air about it. So I I went into this with effectively two things already lined up. One, I knew that this had a fairly negative reputation amongst my circle of friends. And two, I know the source material it's drawing from, which is one of the most British things. <laughs> it is. Do you want to know how British this book is? It's Dickensian. The character Dodger, that Dodger is based on. Yeah. Do you want to know how his story ends? He gets deported to Australia. Oh, really? Really. That's neat. He gets caught for stealing a snuff box. And the whole thing is like, hang on, that's a tiny thing compared to how much he's stolen. And they deported him for that. Wow, this whole justice system is fucked. So I do have a pre-existing relationship with this. And it ties into my cultural heritage. (laughs) And at the same time... Fascinating. They made... The most American thing out of it. They did. In fact, watching this, I was reminded of the last episode we recorded, which uh, on my timeline is a day ago, (laughs) where somebody was heard to say that uh, we shouldn't headline the Great Mouse Detective with the main character's name because Basil is too English. Yes! This movie feels like the YouTube video response from the person (laughs) who found Basil... Too English. Oh, yeah. 
Buckle up, people. This is going to be an angry one. <laughs> right. Well, before we get into that, I will explain the other half of my existing relationship with this movie, which you just reminded me of, because I haven't read Oliver Twist, and I haven't seen any of the various productions of Oliver, but you know what I did see that gave me a big old crush on Dodger? One of those $3 sold-in-the-grocery-store no-name animation studio takes on a public domain story, which was in fact a sequel to Oliver Twist. Yeah. Where Oliver gets adopted by a rich man, but then the rich man dies and his will is stolen by a nefarious criminal, so they have to get the gang back together to go and <laughs> find where the estate was sold to and travel into the country and go find a secret will compartment in his bed. And Yeah, I'm not saying it was a good story. Yeah, but it mattered to you. It did. I feel like it's one of those cases of there were like four movies I watched when I was this age, and that was one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, with that in mind, got anything from the double take? Uh, aside from now recognizing some of the places that Billy Joel Dog name drops <laughs> in his incredibly douchey song, uh, the the only real double take note I have is for our our spoiled French brutal anti villain character mm-hmm. who when the the handsome yet roguish hero shows up in her boudoir looking for his friend totally does the oh make it quick uh, uh you know uh, oh no you mustn't have your way with me but, like I I definitely didn't notice that that's what was going on the first time. Yeah. Yikes. That's super unsettling. <laughs> it's it's very odd. It's I do No, find it's not it... odd. It's exactly in keeping when you get Bette Midler, who's of that particular <laughs> vaudeville tradition, to do a performance. It works entirely for her. It's just this is a movie for 7-year-olds. It's odd in the context of uh like they just they let let's be icky about real world stuff, but uh the if we were to pretend that these were dogs and not people in in dog form, mm-hmm. uh, her song would strongly imply that she's in heat. Yeah, that's since true. that's how you get a neighborhood of male dogs to line up under your window. <laughs> that's a good point. I did not consider that. And the whole thing is kind of like it just takes on a different and entirely more strange character when it's if you think of it as being actual dogs. Yeah, that's a that's a wild thought. <laughs> Yeah, it's it doesn't make it more or less yikesy, really. It just makes it even weirder, and it makes me want to shake that thought loose from my brain and discard it forever. What did you describe it as? You described it as yikesy. But Fox, <laughs> we're on this side of the yikes door. Are we? Oh no! <laughs> we were inside the yikes door all along, apparently. <laughs> Look, a surprising amount of this movie lives inside the yikes door. I was shocked. Yeah, so uh, do, do you want to go first then? I have some notes that are just product of its time, because this movie is extremely of its time. This movie is... Um... <laughs> That's true. The other name for this segment is of its time, and we could just put the whole movie there and leave, to be honest. There is a phrase you might hear used occasionally, I don't know where it's from, of unintentional time capsule. <laughs> where a piece of media is made and just perfectly captures a moment in time that can never be replicated deliberately because it was done accidentally too perfectly. And this, like, it, it, the way it doesn't even, like, sound like a Disney movie. No. Like, every, even the instrumental soundtrack in this is busting out the, like, muted saxophone and... the. Art Deco oh. font fusion pairing of the title, yeah. which comes up in white text with a black drop, which is <laughs> what you would see on live action sitcoms because that was the cheapest, best contrast pairing cheap TV could do in the 80s. You didn't see the more elaborate, like, you, you probably don't remember this, Fox, but Family Matters had a black outline on its font, and that's a big deal. <laughs> No, I don't think I ever watched it. Yeah, whereas Family Ties, a different series, they really, uh, just used a white font with a black drop. Right, and they, they uh, the way they married those two fonts together, one of which is extremely, like, looks like a brand of video cassette. Uh, yeah, so, and the other thing that's, like, the typography of the era is extremely 80s. And you might go, well, how much typography could there be in the film? Everywhere. All over the place. Every fucking surface is splattered with ads. There is the 1980s Coke logo. 
and you go, well, the Coke logo hasn't changed much. Holy fuck, it has. It's it's changed enough to notice. Yeah. And they were very good at doing period appropriate, time correct, location correct. Because this is what New York looks like. New York is covered in ads. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at this makes me think nothing so much as like, what an ugly ass city. And it's also amazing because they weren't paid ads. No? We're sure about that? Yes. They were not product placement ads. <laughs> This was just the animators wanting to be faithful, I guess. Yeah, the animators said, look, it's it's what New York looks like. We couldn't not do it that way. And that's why those logos are the animators drawing the logos rather than the company supplying the logos. <clears throat> we must represent New York City as faithfully as we have represented our vast array of other locations. Like <laughs> somewhere in India and <laughs> Denmark. Probably. It does show you what they care about. And a France entirely filled with English people and New Yorkers. Yep. Uh, yes, yes, it, it does show you what they care about. It fucking does. I go- we will resume this discussion in the next movie. Yeah, I, I'm very... I also have a note of the To the Yikes Door about Georgette's um, Damsel in Distress act. Uh, that bit is uncomfortable. It's an adult joke. I'm really not comfortable with it here. It's an adult joke that probably wasn't regarded as... Like, it was probably regarded as a harmless bit of fun that kids wouldn't get back then, but yeah. I don't think that would fly now. I think that might be a bit too rapey. Yeah. Um. And Georgette and Rita in this movie are both women in this gang. And look, there's no, there's no way to get around the fact that Rita doesn't get to do shit. No, uh, this is not true. Rita gets to do girl shit. She gets to comfort Oliver, yes. She gets to mediate between the guys and consider herself above them until they inevitably draw her into their shit. And she gets to be sensitive to everyone's emotions. Like, she's checking on people's emotional states and stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't fucking count. Yeah. It's just the girl shit. And she gets a song, of course, because, yeah. She's well, also just here to sing. Yeah, and Georgette... Like, in the climax, Georgette's doing shit. It's a variable helpfulness, but she, like, actually uh, uh, contends with the Dobermans momentarily. Rita is just left on the wayside. And this sucks, especially because Rita is voiced by two different black women for speaking and singing voices. Oh, yeah. And Georgette is voiced by a white woman. Yeah. And it it just kind of sucks. Like, I'm not saying that they were like, ah, yes, Rita, the black-coated dog, will be given inadequate things to do. It's just the same sorting mechanism of passive racism and misogynoir just doing it again. Yeah, she definitely loses out more because she's a woman than because she's black. Uh, like, more of the Georgette stuff is based on the fact that she's been horrid up until now, so we need to see her do shit to redeem herself. Yeah. But we also would have needed to see Rita doing some shit if you, you know, established her having stuff that she wanted or cared about beyond just the gang's goals. Yeah, we can, we can talk more about the gang later on. This is this, specifically sure, the sure. Yikes Door stuff. You're, but you are very right. And while we're talking about dogs with black voices, I was not wild about our two uh, villain dogs, uh, the, the evil monster Doberman, uh, who I can't quite put a pin in the ethnicity there. One uh, white guy, one black guy. One white guy, one black guy. Okay. Uh, I, I just felt it was a little bit iffy to, to cast the thugs working for the rich gangster in, in subservient roles. <laughs> yeah. As, as a pair of burly black dudes, as it were. I yeah. guess it's better to know that one of them isn't. I have more of the voice acting later, and it is complicated when it comes to DeSoto and... Roscoe. Or Rasco, if you're in New Yorker, I think. Right, okay, yes. Uh is that they are also a pair of actors who did this job in live-action movies five years earlier. What, also as a duo? Yes. So All right, that's kind of cool, then. They're in Beverly Hills Cop. It's that kind of thing. Um, where they are basically just white goon and black goon working for bad guy. And, well, again, we'll talk more about in the voice acting. I guess, though, the big thing behind the Ike's door is the complicated conversation around <laughs> Tito. Yeah, we, we were both kind of circling that one, but... Yeah. Okay, look, it's not as as a white person trying to be sensitive to, in particular, America's version of stereotyping. Uh, Tito sets my teeth on edge a little bit. But Tito is also Cheech Marin having a good time. So, I don't feel like that yikesiness is up to me to judge. Yeah, Tito has a mixed reception. I did look this up. 
amongst Latin viewers in America. Some people think he's great and he reminds them of like an uncle they have and some can't stand him. I personally don't feel comfortable either way, but he's literally the only Latin thing in this movie. So... Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'm willing to put that in the not-my-goddamn-business box. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, he's still a fucking horny little creep. He really is, and just a really unpleasantly creepy dude. Yeah. He does the off-screen, forcibly kiss someone, get slapped thing. I don't know whether we were supposed to assume that the kiss connected, but they did let the noise proceed. Yeah. But we... why would she have let him connect? I don't get it. Yeah, and he was leaning for leaning towards her, she was leaning away, we cut away, we hear a kiss sound, we hear a slap. Like, it, it does sound like he forcibly put a kiss on it, like her cheek or something, and then she hit him. And like, don't get me wrong. Uh, Dodger, our, our Billy Joel dog, is definitely not innocent of being a bit of a sleaze. Mm. Like, they both just incidentally make, uh, make suggestive, uh, gestures at, effect, effectively wolf whistling. Except they're not wolf, because they're dogs. I think you'd call it catcalling. <laughs> yeah, there you go. They both catcall, uh, female dogs who are just, you know, standing on street corners or riding in cars or some shit. Yeah. And it's either played off for laughs because they're so shabby, or the girls are like, ooh, yeah, it's a bit of rough. Now, this is where the complicated question of humanization of non-human things comes in. This is one of the things where the complicated relationship between humans and non-humans in media comes up once again. Because no, it can't just be a dog thing when you've made your dogs into humans. Exactly. If this, if like dogs absolutely do yip at one another like that, and if we were getting the ability to communicate on the dog's level, then yeah, that would make sense as an exchange. But they're not dogs. They are very much humans. Yeah. So um, I don't I don't approve of Tito's behavior. I don't approve of the moment she starts showing any kind of receptiveness. She's my woman. Mm. I don't approve of the she uses her sex appeal to get him to be brave at the end. I I don't like anything yeah. about this this unlikely romance subplot. And I do not like the ending where it's like, oh no, but if you got a girlfriend, she'll make you do girly shit. Like hygiene. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a whole basket of Yikes, not related to the racial extraction. Mm -hmm. And then when you throw in the way that uh, Latin men are sexualized and, like, almost demasculinized effectively um, in in uh, the media space we're talking about, like, it just sucks all around. They are depicted as, like, a weird combination of, of horny and harmless somehow. Like, yeah. yeah. That's the kind of shit that only dominant cultures can uh, can twist their logic into. Yep. <clears throat> also, uh, just a minor, tiny thing, yeah. yikes-wise, uh, Rita is named after a character from Oliver Twist. Is she? Yeah, uh. like, most of the, most of the, ironically, a lot of the names of the women characters are, like, from Oliver Twist. They're just not quite the characters in question. Because Rita and Sykes in the book are fucking. Hmm. Well, I'm glad they didn't try and do anything clever with that. Yeah, though it does ask the question, why did you use her name at all? I guess just, you know... Sourcing character names. Yeah. So, who else do we have then? We have Francis. Georgette, Rita, Dodger, Fagan, Sykes, and I think that's it. It's possible I'm misremembering on Francis, but Francis is an extremely easily distributed name. Sure, sure. It does also have me wondering if um the full name that Georgette gives for Tito... Alejandro. Mm, such and such and such and such and such and such. Yeah, yeah, good, good There's point. There's something else she calls him that's shorter. It's part of the longer name. It's not Tito. It's, ah, oh, God. I can't remember it now. She only says it like three times. Hmm. Anyway, you briefly made me wonder if that was also a reference to something in the books, but... I wouldn't expect it to be. It, it was It was also Latin, so... Yeah, it, and it didn't leap out at me. So, nonetheless, that's all I got here in the yikes door. Um, I'm also going to give it a yikes for, um... Look, I don't care if you did make the dogs your villains. I didn't need to see two dogs get electrocuted to death in, in this children's movie. Yeah, good point. I, I don't care how bad guys they were. That's still not okay. Yeah, I I also just generally don't like the, you know, these dogs are working for the wrong person, therefore they are evil dogs. Yeah, yeah. Like, the correct line is, is even a dog that has been mangled by a bad person is still a dog at heart and therefore still good. Yeah. What you should have done is not given him dogs. <laughs> what would you have given him, though? We've already done alligators. A pair of knuckleheads. A oh, pair humans. of stupid humans. Yeah, okay. 
I don't know if it would have been crossing the line to have two humans beat the shit out of Dodger, though. Mm. I mean, it's definitely evil. Well, you didn't need to show Dodger getting beaten up either. The threat was enough. Anyway. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is this is a real villainous villain on a level of menace that we don't often see, even uh, even from Disney villains who celebrate their evil. Like, there's a point where he uses a physical threat that is the same as fucking Ving Rhames in a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah. And that's how you know you've got an actual, like, grown-up villain. Yeah, he... I am. There's a lot of stuff about this movie that surprises me with how mature an adult it is, but it's not in service of anything interesting, which surprises me in the other direction. Surprising how mature an adult it is, and then there's a singing dog wearing sunglasses. You can have, and, and like we, we'll talk more about this later. This isn't really a yikesy topic to me. It's just it is remarkable the ways that this movie shows that sometimes doing things in a mature way doesn't get you a mature story. Yeah, that sounds about right. Because, I mean, the the overall... The story, such as it is, and I guess this is the essence of what I would say for the main event of it, is is just sort of glossing over the idea that someone could be desperate enough to commit a kidnapping because of, of poverty and uh, exploitation, and they don't really resolve that. They just have a birthday party, and we're to understand that everything's fine now. Yep. It's... It's a worry, and it's definitely a, like, you know, that ending has Jenny's level of perspective, whereas the rest of the movie has Fagin's level of perspective. Certainly the climax. Detour into the main thesis aside, shall we talk about the animation? Sure, yeah. This uh, this is a weird one, isn't it? This is an exceptionally weird movie, because we know, technically speaking, this movie literally sits on a middle space between the xerography era and the computer-assisted drawing era. Right, I mean, we've definitely got a lot of computer-assistant stuff in here. It's, uh... Yep. It is both a lot more common and a lot more jarring than in, in, uh, Basil. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we... They, they took the opportunity to do just a lot of car stuff, a lot of, uh, panning shots with cars going across in the foreground, but we're looking at them from the front so they turn in perspective as we scroll past them. Yep. Which, you know, there's no fucking way they were going to do that with hand-drawn stuff. Sykes' car. Sykes' car. We've got the entire subway sequence, like, you notice your background detail goes out the fucking window as soon as we get into the underground. There's a moment in the opening, in the montage that's meant to make us feel sorry for Oliver, where nothing is shaded. Not foreground or background. And it really stands out. <laughs> it's uh, it's an, a new kind of cheapness, really. Like, we, we've noted that... We can see where these movies are saving their budget in a couple of places, but mm -hmm. this is the first time it's looked like this, and it's weird to get used to. The backgrounds are really quite excellently made. I thought maybe, hey, this all has a very strong feeling of a sense of place to it, and it turns out that for a while there, Disney had uh, guys running around New York City with cameras <laughs> 18 inches off the ground, taking photographs on a stick. Oh, that's cute. To get, like, good background shot structures that they could then draw over. It's, uh, the backgrounds in this made me think of none of these so much as 101 Dalmatian. Like, we once again got that intensely cluttered, mm. uh, slightly abstract colouring. Like, you know, if a, a block of colour goes outside the lines and it's not a mistake, it's a question of stylization. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw that in a lot of scenes here as well. What this movie felt like to me, in a very strange way, was a lot like Hunchback. Meh? Yeah, in Hunchback, work was done to make Notre Dame Cathedral a character in the movie. She has a presence, she frames situations, the way people behave around her is important, the way people speak in her is important. This movie tries to make New York part of everything it's doing, to the point where <laughs> all the scenery details are very specific to the time and place of New York in the 1980s in ways that made us go, what? Like, the, the school bus. Yeah, that's weird. Is that, did, is that a real thing? Did school buses look like that? I couldn't easily find, did school buses in 1980s New York look like taxis? <laughs> like maxi taxis. Yeah. It, like, it, I'm used to the American school bus with the big yellow design and all that shit that we don't have here. Yeah, and I can understand if New York doesn't have those, because... It's a tightly, densely packed city, and she's also rich, so... 
I assumed it was a, a wealthy school thing, like, like yeah, a, that would make sense. A because a school that's packed with kids still needs a big school bus. Though I, maybe they just live close enough that you walk and you know you need a bus. Maybe you only need to get picked up and go to school for yeah, whatever. I don't know. We're not going to solve this mystery. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't know. Um, but things like the specific windows on the construction site, the specific shape of fire hydrants, the vents on the ground. The uh, service elevator that opens up under Dodger. Just, and of course, the subway, which... Yeah, yeah you thought we were going to get out of this movie with a big subway sh- without a big subway show down there. Yeah, and... <laughs> you do not understand this movie. Yeah, and, and, and like, that's all very New York. It is, it is. It's, it, I, I get what you're saying. Like, it's not like a character, the way that Notre Dame is. It doesn't seem to have opinions on things or whatever. Mm-hmm. But... It's, they went out of their way to do a bunch of shit that couldn't be done in another location. Or at least not recognized in another location. Uh-huh. Especially in, in Dodger's I Am song. Speaking of I Am songs, I I sort of have the feeling, in retrospect, that this might be the first, like, musical? Disney musical? Like, it's the first one we have the full, like, suite of songs. I admit, I can only think of four? But, like, they, they occupy the places you would expect. Yeah. Well, we get a second uh, be part of the cool hero group song rather than a villain song, I guess. So we're not all the way there yet. Yeah. Well, the the, the accoutrement, the standard set of songs is itself a set and you don't necessarily have every movie hitting all of them. Yeah, yeah. But it does only have, I think, four or five songs in it. Really, it's like, I was surprised how few of the movies we've watched so far did relatively formula musical structure. Because uh, Disney is so well known for doing animated musicals. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, like, that really didn't start until the Renaissance. It, it, it wasn't so much a Renaissance as it was a new type of Disney movie that, like, instantly redefined it. And it's just weird to me to have gone, hang on, th- th- this one kind of gets there first. There is a liminality here in this end of this season, because you do have... If you had told me Fox and the Hound is the first Disney musical, I would have gone, eh, I guess. And if you'd said that Basil is the first musical, I would have gone, eh, I guess. And if you said this, I I still go, eh, I guess. Because they all do have that burst into song, diegetic music, characters using song to express feeling kind of thing. And whether or not it's good isn't necessarily the same thing as whether or not it was first. Well, I'm not disqualifying them on the the grounds of being less good. Like, I don't think of The Fox and the Hound as a musical because the characters don't burst into song with a surplus of emotion. Big Mama shows up to do a song number about what they're feeling, which is a different kind of thing. Fair enough. I, like, I mean, none of our main characters sing. Most of the songs are non-diegetic. They're, you know, backing a montage or something. There's only the, the occasional one where she speaks directly to a main character so like that's like all of these disney films almost have had songs in them but most of them are musicals and uh mouse detective once again comes close we we have our villain doing a big actual diegetic song uh and yes and then he records another one for later sure (laughs) Um, but we, the, the only other musical number we have is a weird detour into sexy fuckable mouse times for some reason. Yeah. Well, uh, we know the reason. <laughs> Somebody wanted to animate the mouse you were supposed to want to fuck. Yeah, okay, mouse fuckery may be the reason, but the version Wikipedia has is they did it to try and sell a single. Oh, right, yes, we did talk about that, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, there's been a great deal of time between then and now. It's very reasonable that I forgot. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I think I'm I'm staking my flag in this one as being the first. You don't have to agree with it. I would, uh, I would, I think myself, I would want to hear the directorial mindset about why songs are used. And knowing what I know about the way this movie got made, <laughs> I would not be surprised if this became a musical as a byproduct of other things. And that doesn't mean it's not a musical, but it definitely means that maybe this is not the first Disney musical defined by these parameters kind of thing. All right, all right. I see that perspective. 
But I it's mean, mostly uncertainty on my part. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying, well, I don't know how I would uh, how I would necessarily agree with you. <laughs> well, you're definitely right in one way, which is that you don't hire Billy Joel to be an actor first and foremost. Yeah, you hire him because he's just had a kid. You also don't hire Bette Midler to be an actor first and foremost. I'm not mm. saying that either of them is bad at that. Mm. But, uh, well, you had they had Bette Midler's friend in the last one, so... Oh, that's right. She was a backup singer or something, wasn't she? The, the fuckable mouse, yeah. And they got her back to be the fuckable dog. Yep. My notes on the animation mostly just mention that the animation in Georgette's bit is the one time in this movie that it feels like the animation is having fun. That's pretty much why I described her as being possibly the best thing about this. Like, mm. she, there is a joy in her character that I don't really feel from most of our main cast. I There was a moment of joy in the end of Sykes. Like... Whoever animated or directed or storyboarded or someone making that choice of that's how we end him. Like, there is a vicious joy in ending <laughs> so terrible a man in so brutal a way in such a artfully deniable structure. You know what? I said before that New York wasn't a character the way that Notre Dame is, but they both fucking murder the bad guy for us. So, <laughs> I mean... you. It, that's that's what's going on there, right? New York City fucking killed that guy with a subway. Yep. Yeah. Her animation also features the the most egregious CG scene as far as I'm concerned as well. Like the, the spiraling staircase going down. I see what they were trying to do with it, but it just became a big, empty, unshaded shape where the, the spiraling motion was everything and there was nothing else there if you weren't sort of distracted by that. Yep. It's... I mean, you know, it's fair. They're they're really finding their feet with this stuff. Uh, I think the previous movie was the first time that we noticed it actually being. Yeah. The reason I don't have a clear answer for that, by the way, is because that opens the door to Chuck Jones shitting on Disney. Ah, yes. Because of the xerograph. Well, yeah, okay, but there was some other technique we talked about during yeah, that, Yeah, uh, the APT technique that was used for the backgrounds and some of the animation in Black Cauldron. It was Black Cauldron. Ah, okay, yeah, that's but makes sense. Yeah, okay. that's why. That's why it's there's no clear definitive point where there was like definitely not using this technology, definitely now using this technology. It's definitely the Black Cauldron episode where we talked about it, though. Yes, so we'll harken back to that, I guess. Black Cauldron is the one where we talked about Chuck Jones and his beef with xerography. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, old animators gonna be mad about technique. Who knew? I don't even know if he was necessarily mad. But I think he was mad about the idea of them treating Black Cauldron like it was a new revolutionary thing <laughs> and not just more of what they were already doing. But, eh. That ain't my business. Though, speaking of older techniques, I did notice that um, we we did have a little bit of that sketchy xerography look creeping back in. Even yeah. though our last couple of movies were so clean. Yeah, Francis particularly. Fra yeah, that's who I was going to mention. I don't, maybe they just wanted, they, they did more complicated animation on his jowls or something. Or, or it may be that <laughs> Francis is just meant to look like that. That might be like a stylistic choice of like, we want Francis to look like Flamdefleur. <laughs> oh my god. You did that on purpose. I knew I would get it wrong, but I didn't necessarily know how wrong. Your Nana would give you the look. Yeah, it's true. Well, it would be a weird choice for one of the shorter-haired dogs in the cast. Uh, aside from that, I just got a couple of notes. Uh, did you spot some cameos? I saw Pongo. I saw Pongo and I saw Jock from ah. Lady in the Trap. There's probably a couple of other dogs in there I should recognize too, but I didn't. If anyone would, it would be you. <laughs> I don't know about that. Like, Remember, I've only seen this a couple of times, unlike a lot of these. Uh, did you notice a forward cameo, as it were? You probably didn't, actually. No. Uh, have you by chance seen the Fox and the Hound midquel? Is Bette Midler's Georgette a lot like Reba McIntyre's? No, Rita is almost 100% uh, the the sexy female dog singer character they put in that movie. Oh, man. Yeah. Doing Rita dirty. It is a bit rude to have reused her design too, especially for Reba McIntyre, who's... The whitest woman in country. Fairly white, yes. And then we'll just finish up this section. Did you did you notice your old friend that you've been checking out since the xerography era started? <laughs> Big chunky Disney dump. <laughs> what the shit? 
Winston's ass, Talon. <laughs> Have you seen it? Yeah, Win- Winston absolutely has a back shelf, yes. Who wanted to animate an ass like a, bar- like a bag full of jelly? <laughs> well, someone did. As far as the animation stuff goes, I went looking for anything I should know about, just to clarify some things, and um, this isn't really about the animation per se, but it is about the making. This is the first movie which had both Michael Eisner as CEO and... Katzenberg as the head of animation. Right. In the making of this movie, Musker and Clements and Young all came together and gave pitches. Want to take a guess at what the two unmade pitches were? <laughs> um, did one of them have mice again? No. Ah. They were... Wait, were they both pitches for a treatment of this movie or were they pitches for different movies? They were pitches for... they. So Katzenberg asked for pitches... For new animated feature films to be made, Muska, Clements, and Young all each submitted one. Oh, okay, so it could be anything. Ah, uh, is this the point where Muska and Clements first submit Treasure Planet in sp- first submit Treasure Island in space? Yes, yes. <laughs> and Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. Mm, ah, okay. So greenlit all three of them, but one took longer than the others. Yep. <laughs> oh dear. Was do we know if this was a straight? Uh, Oliver Pitch at first, and yeah. Eisner was like, it's not American enough, put some America in there. Yeah, it was Oliver Twist with dogs. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, that's the, that part speaks for itself. But that was the pitch. That was the whole thing at, at first. Okay. Uh, the fact that it became New York and over here is a, <laughs> is a subsequent issue. I'm New York and over here. <laughs> that's, that's a... <laughs> I have a friend from New York who's going to yell at me for that. I'm... You know, now that I think about it, I'm so annoyed they didn't make one of the main cast a Yorkshire Terrier and constantly make jokes out of that. <laughs> New Yorkshire Terrier! Exactly! Yeah. So, do you want the real quick rundown on why you might recognize these voice actors? Well, I know a couple off the top of my head. We've already talked about Billy Joel Dog and Bette Midler Dog. Yep, they're the freebies. They're your yeah. free squares. <laughs> And I guess I'll take this as a a uh, double take credit because I did not realize that this is a young Joey Lawrence. Yep, Oliver, which means this is our second in a row to have a Blossom character in it. <laughs> That's I feel like he's definitely our most most uh, competent, uh, adorable little boy child voice so yeah. far. How old is he at this point? Do we know? He's twelve. He's twelve. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Uh, Francis. Is the inimical Roscoe Lee Brown, who is one of my personal go-to examples for cross-race voicing in media. Roscoe Lee Brown was a black actor who didn't like doing any stereotypically black roles. He worked very hard to get any roles, obviously, in a racist society. But as a voice actor, you would know him, if you're me and Clay, as the (laughs) original cartoon voice. Of the kingpin. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That guy's voice coming out of an enormous whale of a man who could crush you. Rita is voiced by Cheryl Lee Ralph, who done a bunch of voice acting work. Most recently, in ways that Fox would recognize, she's Amanda Waller in Young Justice. Oh, she fucking rules. Yes. Hell yeah. That's like the best Waller they've ever animated. Yep. Uh, well, she's like the best Waller they've ever had in a fucking film. Yep. Fagin is Dom DeLuise. That one I also picked up, yeah. And we've talked about uh, Cheech already, of course. Yep. Einstein. Einstein is amazing. He's the Great Dane, isn't he? Yes. He's a guy by the name of Richard Mulligan. And I'm like, okay, well, this guy's got a huge, huge list of voice credits. Surely I can find something he's been in that Fox would have seen. He did such a surprisingly small amount of voice work in this as well. Yeah. He was not a character who got a lot of lines. Richard Mulligan is Grandpa from the Angry Beavers. Oh, I didn't watch a lot of Oh, no! Nickelodeon wasn't really my jam. (laughs) Who would have guessed they would make Avatar in ten years? Sykes was a guy by the name of Robert Loggia, who you may remember as Malcolm's weird granddad from the old country in Malcolm in the Middle. Very vaguely. Uh Uh-huh. And the little girl who voiced Jenny (laughs) was the Alice in the live-action Alice in Wonderland that freaked us both the fuck out as kids. Huh! Wow, it's not as old as I thought it was then. No! Or she's older in this movie and just somehow sounds like an incompetent child actor still. She stopped acting at the age of seven. Okay, she... Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> there you go. She got her credits in. She did a couple of movies that never got released that were just treatments for series and whatnot. And then she retired from acting and does not want to be bothered. Nah, Jenny is a nothing character. 
Which is a shame, because I honestly think she did a perfectly competent job. She... Uh... <laughs> you know what this is? This is the fact that I can't look at Jenny and go, well, when I was that age, I could have done a better job. Whereas you can! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how old she's supposed to be in this, but she, like, she's... Ri- Sorry, she just, every time she opens her mouth, she has a real line read quality to her. I don't appreciate the acting job. It's a, it's alright for it not to be particularly inspired if this kid is six or seven. That's not their fault. Mm. But I didn't enjoy listening. Now... When we were sitting down to discuss the grand thesis of this movie, I don't think either of us have anything so deep that it really grates above a whatever land. It's not a very deep movie. Like it, like our previous one, it's mostly just here to have a good time, and I'm okay with that. And I do have some stuff with some more sinew later, but it doesn't belong in the grand thesis category. Because when I tried to write down, like, what's the central message of this whole thing? I can't escape the fact that this movie feels douchey. <laughs> A lot of that is the 80s veneer, but it's not just superficial either. Maybe. I don't find the 80s inherently douchey, but I do think this movie is very impressed with being New York and how great New York is and how there's so much great stuff about New York and the people of New York are just so cool because they live in New York. And this is after taking a British novel about deprivation and class struggle and making it this. And it just feels really smug and self-satisfied. And I don't like saying this about a dog character, but I want to fucking hit Dodger. <laughs> He's a, yeah. Well, this when I say 80s veneer, this is what I'm talking about. Like, these characters are very cool in an inseparable from its time version of cool. Like, yeah. There is a timeless kind of cool, and there is this kind of cool, which is, you know... Uh, whipping the high five out of the way. Yeah, the too slow. Oh, and, and the lingo and the, the attitude. Remember how I said that oh. Fox and the Hound kind of defined the way kids talked in 80s movies? <laughs> this feels like it's trying to like do that again <laughs> forcefully and it's really not good. It's definitely ramping up into the, the version of this that would follow through to the radical 90s as well. Yeah. This is, it's it's not just extremely 80s, it's extremely 1988. Yeah. It, <laughs> like, pinpoint. It's teetering on the edge between the puffy Reeboks and the Jazz Cup. <laughs> oh, God. This is also another reason I can't stand Jenny, by the way. Because she, like, visually she is also an 80s elemental. Like, the... The half hair in the ponytail and the little fucking leg warmer look and the tights under skirt under sloppy joe. Yeah. Oh. Maybe it's just being able to see a child character in one of these movies wear something that I and my sister wore and just deeply hating it. She looks like all three of the chipettes as one person. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I hate how good a description that is. Oh, I have been sitting on that one for an hour! Oh. <laughs> oh, I hate it. Yeah, let's see. Grand thesis. Uh, this movie's bullshit because it pretends that deeply rooted issues of poverty that can make you so desperate you might even hurt your own family in trying to solve them uh, can be fixed by doing the right thing uh, and receiving one gratitude birthday party and then going back to... Exactly the situation you were in before, minus one villain. That's right, the problem is one villain, not capitalism. Yeah. That's uh, that's a real interesting takeaway to get from Oliver Twist. I guess it's fine if you're a dog. Just imagine what happens if you deport one of those dogs to Australia. They have to spend three months in quarantine because of rabies. <laughs> hey, Fox, let's go to... Fox. Fox. Your grand thesis is clearly bothering you. Here, let me take you away to the wonderful world of whatever land. You know what? Yeah, get, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> New York City is basically the most boring place in the world to me to set something <laughs> through sheer oversaturation of everything in my entire fucking life. I can think of one thing that is very New York that I actually think is okay because it's New York, and that's the nanny. <laughs> That's more like Fran Drescher's elemental power. Yeah, you can't take her away from her mind palace. <laughs> she dreamed New York into existence. Ooh, I like that idea. Because Fran Drescher is a powerful warlock. 
Yeah, I'm I'm offended by how much I have to know about New York. Just yeah. uh, shut up about New York already. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it wasn't so overexposed by then. I don't know. Maybe we were as fascinated by America as they were by us, which will become evident in two movies' time. But I just, these days, I could not give a fuck. The loving care used to represent New York in this will come back when we start talking about Australia. <laughs> Boy, will it! <laughs> All right. My first word Everland note. Does it- did you catch the opening song addressing him by name? I'm not sure if that was the lyric or not, but I swear to God, there's a bit where they say, like, Oliver, don't give up your dream or something like that. And I'm like, <laughs> if that was a name drop, I'm going to be so fucking angry. <laughs> I think it was. I think you're right. I, it, it, it could be other words. There's some accents at play in this film which don't scan well for me. <laughs> fucking Sykes at one point says... A word that sounds like key or something. It's just I, I worked it out after a minute, but I, I really had to think about what that fucking vowel sound was originally before he got to it. They don't use as many vowels in New York. <laughs> Georgette has been a national champion six times, indicating that she is at least seven. Mm-hmm. By all I can, I, by all counts I could find of poodle age, this means she is middle aged. Yep. Assuming she started trying out at the age of one, which is to say, this is about. A horny middle-aged lady who is very impressed with herself. Which so, also, yeah. I would forward, this is a The Nanny prequel. <laughs> that does, I mean, that all scans with exactly the vibe she's giving off as well. Like, she's that kind of, uh, you know, glam, but like, trying profoundly hard glam and slightly desperately holding onto her edge before it fades like the transient property that all physical beauty is or something about lessons, I think. Clearly women are worse when they try. It's not unproblematic. Hey, you know what I do like? Giant fucking sewer rats wearing sunglasses. (laughs) Hell yeah! Hey, do you know why Jenny's a redhead? She's a redhead? That's so much funnier than I was expecting. (laughs) She looks like a brunette to me. I didn't realize she was supposed to be a redhead. She's meant to be a redhead because I want to make sure she wasn't Penny. Sure. I, hang on. This came up before. She was almost Penny because this was almost... A sequel to The Rescuers. It was going to be mice. <laughs> oh, I'm the smartest man alive. <laughs> it's close. It's that they were going to follow Penny without The Rescuers. Wow. And her ability to talk to dogs and animals. That is the incorrect choice for that sequel. I don't feel like the bit with dogs chase Oliver at the beginning was well conceived because you still got that fucking soft rock saxophone bullshit telling us about once upon a time in New York City while you've got horrible monster dogs going (laughs) and like (laughs) our actual dog looked at you I'm sorry sorry. (laughs) oh nobody can guilt you like a whippet can guilt you whippets are underused in these dog movies I'll tell you what Fagin is nothing like Fagin no Fagin's kind of a piece of shit in the original isn't he Fagin is exploitative he's rich Fagin, oh. Fagin in the book is wealthy. He has lots of money because he has been doing this for decades and exploiting generation after generation of child that then wind up becoming criminals and falling into the dock Man. and he never has to deal with them again. He's rich and he looks and dresses and behaves like a hobo because he's such a miser. So does Sykes exist in the original? Yeah. Or is he... Sykes okay. is a crime boss that Fagin refers to. Okay. But... Uh, Fagin is now at the point where Fagin is used as a general all-purpose term in Britain for someone who leads children into crime. Hmm. So maybe should have renamed him or something for this, perchance. Yeah, given him one of the names <laughs> of one of the characters in the gang instead yeah. of the name of the person running the gang in an exploitative way. But what do I know? I just read the fucking book. <laughs> and like, he's very clearly in this a, a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Who, while he is doing bad things, very much loves the dog. He can't bring himself to hurt Jenny, even emotionally. Like, the money from the piggy bank would be better than no money. But he can't bring himself to do that. I think we all know the money from the piggy bank wouldn't have meant shit at that point. It wouldn't have meant shit, but it's still some money, which is more than no money. And the point is he gave the kitten back. Yeah. Like, Fagin's you a could good just guy. be like, no, I'm bailing, I want nothing else to do with this. But he didn't. He yeah. made her feel better. And on the note of Fagin is a good guy, that's the next thing on my card. Did, like, it, it's one thing to give him a pat the dog moment, 
Because he, like, obviously, these dogs are all love him and dogs are good judges of character. That's that's not true, actually. Dogs love everyone. They're terrible judges of character. But the point is, not only that, but did you notice that he knows the names of the villain dogs? Yeah. He cares enough to call them by name and that's a good guy trait. Yeah. I like this Fagin character a lot. I wish he wasn't named after an irreparable shithead. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a very unfortunate thing to learn. Did you notice... That Jenny's room has video games in it. I didn't. And it's 1988 wow. and she's rich. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, she'd have to be if she's uh-huh. got video games in 1988. Jesus. Yep. Okay, I may be overstating that slightly because I didn't get a console until the Nintendo 64. But <laughs> Yeah, but it doesn't, it, it is amusing that showing her having video games in her bedroom was a sign of wealth and oh, yeah, that it became the norm across the next decade. I feel like having a TV in your bedroom, in particular, in your room in particular, is a very rich kid thing. Like, there might have been video games in a fair number of American households in the late 80s, but I doubt they were in someone's bedroom spot. <laughs> Speaking of Jenny being rich, the fucking cat tag from a New York jewelry store? Holy crap! Jesus Christ, that tag is probably worth more than anything Fagan's ever gotten his hands on before. <laughs> That's... I, th- there really was no point expounding on it in the main event of this episode, but this movie's relationship with poverty makes me so fucking mad. <laughs> this would have just been me saying that over and over and fucking over again. It is funny that the economic disparity represented in po- in Oliver was meant to be an example of the worst the world can be. And, like, you know, cocaine-addled 1980s New York? Like, <laughs> just saying. When Fagin heads into Sykes' office and he's on the phone and he has the fantastic line, No, you start with the knuckles. <laughs> Why did they keep going? That was the perfect phone non-sequitur. To just, like, you say that, you hang up, you turn to the newcomer. <laughs> The rest was so clumsy, a follow-up. It made me angry, because that line was fantastic and terrifying. Just terrifying and threatening, it's great. So good on its own, yeah. Oh wait, this isn't a real Whatever Land card, because this is just the one where I was like, did you think we were going to escape this movie without Subway? (laughs) No. Eat free... (laughs) Not that Subway. So, movie... This movie structurally has some problems, right? structure is its real issue you don't think it's weird that we have less than a day before he gets picked up by uh jenny and his entire life changes i mean it does feel a little bit compressed i guess and then we have a very abstract time uh time frame for how long he spent with jenny uh that was not a good song by the way no that was a bad song you can tell because they just repeated it in its entirety they did not write a second verse uh, the original director was a guy called Petey Young, who was the one who pitched Oliver Twist with dogs. Noted. Uh-huh. Uh, then he fucking died. Oh. Yeah. Oh, well, now I feel bad for bad-mouthing him a bit then. Uh, he got replaced by a guy called Richard Rich. Hang on a fucking minute. Yeah, that name ring a bell to you? I remember him from last episode. Well, a little bit before last episode. Oh, sorry, yeah. Two episodes ago now, wasn't it? Yeah. It's all the same in my mind. Yeah, well, it turns out that um, that guy was getting to work on this project because of all the work he did on the Black Cauldron. So he survived the Black Cauldron? No. No. Oh, it didn't release until this one was already... Yeah. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, that's when he started fighting with Disney about, how dare you second guess me? I made the Black Cauldron. And then they got the results back on the Black Cauldron. Oh, man. Yeah, he... he, uh, You didn't want to make that the headline on your resume, man. Yeah, and that's when he decided to spend some more time with his family. (sighs) Then it got handed to the guy called George Scribner, who effectively at this point had been handed two halves of a movie. <laughs> well, look, I still don't think this this tracks that badly um, in terms of direction. Like, it's not efficient like Great Mouse Detective was. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little sloppy. Uh, you could definitely feel that, that some of the song numbers were just sort of spinning wheels. Yep. Um, but, you know, if if you had told me is this awkward enough that it feels like a a uh, directorial mess that went through three different people? I wouldn't have guessed that. Okay, so now you have some of the parts that are all moving in with one another here. 
when it comes to the way this movie got made. And this is where the majority of my surprise for this movie came up. Because now we need to talk about capitalism. The capitalism around this movie was surprising, you said? Well, there were certain events related to this that I wasn't expecting. Like, one thing I was expecting, and that happened, is the Black Cauldron would get this thing's budget kicked in. Which it did. Sure, makes sense, yeah. This movie's budget outlay, wanna guess? Uh, so got cut. I mean, it's gotta be comparable to Basil, right? <laughs> that was an interesting noise you just made. I know. A totally normal noise that people make all the time. Was it comparable to Black Cauldron and then got cut in half? So the budget for this movie was 31 million. It outpaced yeah, Black wow. Cauldron. This, I mean, okay, some of these voice actors were very expensive, but I, that's still a lot of money for a movie that does not look or feel that fantastic. And it shared an opening weekend with Land Before Time. Ooh! Oh! Ooh! Oh, man, it is... It is not normal for a Disney film to open across from a competing animated feature film that feels like the Disney film in this scenario. But before you concern yourself with how well it did... I mean, I know it still succeeded. They decided to give this movie another shot and put it in theaters again a few years later. Huh. Where it opened to the same weekend as All Dogs Go to Heaven. <laughs> well, that's a more equal comparison. Ah. Uh... So you can see the narrative that I would assume <laughs> happened here, right? <laughs> you assume that if they gave it another release so soon, it must have been mediocre the first time? Yeah. But I seem to remember being surprised last time I looked at the numbers on this, in that I assumed this had done poorly because it's just not a good movie. Yeah, it's, it's trash. <laughs> I, yeah. That was it, my opinion, not, not yours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it trash. That feels mean-spirited, but it's not... Not trash. I care about Oliver Twist. <laughs> this movie is shit. <laughs> and I care about not Americanizing things unnecessarily. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, All Dogs Go to Heaven is not a high art masterpiece. No. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's the origin of big-lipped alligator moment. It, it has its weirdnesses. So do you want to sure, take a I, guess? I'm waffling around the place. Um, is it gonna be, oh god, is it gonna be this? Is this gonna be the movie that breaks them a hundred million of the box office? Holy fucking shit! It is? Oh no! This is the first animated movie ever made <laughs> that broke a hundred million at the box office. Wow. No wonder it feels smug. This movie got a positive critical reaction. <laughs> the biggest complaints about this wow. film were, well, it's not as groundbreaking as Pinocchio. <laughs> Why Should I Worry was nominated for a Golden Globe. That song? Ah, that wasn't even catchy enough for me to remember the notes to do it on a kazoo. And this is my surprise. This movie, which in its best description is average. I thought this would be a movie that, like, maybe audiences were like, it's harmless fun, whatever, it's popcorn, it's 1988, I love a cheese ball thing, let's just go have some sentimental fun with doggies. But I had not imagined it would have gone over well with critics. Ugh, people were sappier than I thought in the 80s. Yeah, and there was lots of praise for how thoroughly they represented New York. <laughs> A city which, just coincidentally, a lot of critics live in. I wonder why that is. Sure, it's got nothing to do with that. Anyway. Yeah, no, th this movie was, by all accounts, a <sighs> raging success. Wow. This movie was one of the highest, well, it was the highest grossing animated film of all time at the time it hit that mark. Don't get me wrong, its crown was very handily knocked off later. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to take long. It, But if you had asked me, a, much like The Black Cauldron, if you had told me that this was some other company's movie, yeah, I would have believed you. This doesn't feel like Disney. I mean, it it feels like Disney when you look at it because there's really no one else that it could be. But it's so weird to hear Disney doing a bunch of pop music and and modern day shit. It's it's bizarre. And yeah, I guess I'm just really annoyed that this movie is both critically and culturally and commercially successful because i think it's terrible you'll notice that uh last episode i guessed uh, i also made that guess about the hundred million at basil because i knew that it was way more successful than its budget uh indicated and if you had told me that one of these two was the one that broke the hundred million 
I would not have guessed that it would be Once Upon a Time in 1988. I, oh. Well. That's season three, Fox. The dogs are cute. The dogs are pretty cute. I wish Rita had been given more to do. I wish they had struck a little more closely to the books. I wish we weren't in New York. New York! (laughs) Hey, we've been... (laughs) Hey, I'm walking here. Sorry, you're working? (laughs) Walking here. You're you're walking? (laughs) Like, you're you're cooking? (laughs) No, I'm walking. Damn it, what was I going to... Hey, you're you're rocking? (laughs) You're, You're doing a Billy Joel song? No, 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 I'm walking here. Oh, you're, you're Academy Award-winning actor Christopher Walken. Well, uh, this, uh, this, this yeah. clock went up his ass. <laughs> what the fuck is that from? Uh, so what's next, Fox? What's next, he said. What's next is the dawn of an era. <laughs> what's next is what has been scored on the brains of every millennial theatre kid. What, what is next is the, the song of my people. <laughs> which is to say, young white girls from the 90s. <laughs> We have eaten a lot of our vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, today we had a cheeseburger, I guess. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a treat, though? Oh, no, sorry. Today we had a hot dog. Yeah, today we had a hot dog when we were walking. <laughs> <laughs> Damn I don't have another joke for it. <laughs> ah, I'm out. Mm, we, we have eaten a lot of our vegetables. We are now going to get to start on some things that I think of as interesting but I also haven't seen all of them. Ooh! Ah! Your, your story is always so strange. I don't know how you be a 90s kid and miss out on some of the Disney Renaissance. This is going to be fun. Yep. But that's next season. And we'll see you then.